Standby playback. And now, Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you think they're going after Donald Trump with hammer and tong, you're not going to believe what's going on in the state of Arizona. i got to start with that because this is just broken literally in the last couple of hours. It involves Carrie Lake. Remember Kerry Lake, who ran for governor in a race, in an election that was being run by Katie Hobbs? And then the person running the election actually ends up winning as governor and becomes governor of Arizona State? And you tell me the fix is not in? Wait till you hear what's been going on and the recording of a conversation. Because this shows us that it's not just the Democrats out there that are causing problems. They're not the only ones who are attacking Donald Trump. Because, for example, uh, Nikki Haley, who's currently still in the race, although I kind of expect her to be out of the race, at least by South Carolina, maybe she'll be out after the results are in tonight from New Hampshire. But consider what just broke, a recording of a phone call between who? The Arizona Republican chair, Jeff DeWitt, who sounds like he's not, he might be a rhino. He might be a Republican in name only. He's caught on a secret recording trying to bribe one of the top name candidates out there, Carrie Lake, the one who ran for governor, and at least in theory lost, even though the contest was being controlled by then Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, who then, amazingly enough, became governor of the state of Arizona. And what was he telling Carrie Lake? He was telling her, don't run for the U.S. Senate. Now, can you imagine this? Most Republican chairs try to say, hey, we'd like you to run for office. And she's got name familiarity. She's popular. Uh, and what does he tell her? He says there are very powerful people who want to keep you out. And at one point during that recording, Carrie Lake was asked by the chair of the Republican Party of Arizona, what is your number? Name a number. And he says, just say, is there a number at which, and Carrie Lake interjects, at which I can be bought? That's what it's about? And DeWitt, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, on this recording, says, you can take a pause for a couple of years. You can go right back to what you're doing after that. And she says, this is not about money. It is about our country. So when you have Democrats who are fighting, they are using every tool, legitimate or not, to try to keep Donald Trump from being president of the United States, even though it's very clear that a majority of Republicans and I think a majority of Americans want Donald Trump back and they want Joe Biden gone. They want him gone now. In fact, most of Joe Biden's own party does not want him to be the nominee. And they don't have anybody else to suggest. All they know for sure is they hate Donald Trump with a passion and they don't want him. But they also don't want their own guy who's currently sitting in the Oval Office. By the way, not communicating very much. He doesn't take a lot of questions or anything like that. And then you have this guy, this uh, Jeff DeWitt, chair of the Arizona Republican Party. And uh, and he's on a recording trying to bribe a Republican candidate not to run for the United States Senate, saying, take a break. We got a lot of people with a lot of money. Name a number. 
Joel, if we've got that soundbite, I'll I'll play the whole thing. It's long, but I got to tell you something. This is from a recording of a phone call between Carrie Lake and Jeff DeWitt, Arizona Republican Party chair. If we've got it, let's play it right now. Is there a number at which I can be bought? <laughs> That's what it's about. You can take a pause for a couple of years. No. And then go right back to what you're doing. Mm-mm. No. 10 million, 20 million, 30, no, no, no. A billion, no. This is not about money. This is about our country. This is about our country. Wow. I think it's disturbing that they would even, that anybody would think this is. I, I, no, to be fair, even me, even me, I'll say this. I want a fresh face right now for the reason that I've never seen anyone. I can't think of a single person in a federal race who's lost, ran in and won. Okay. can't think of it. If you can think of it, let me know. I'm not going to let these people who hate our country tell me not to run. You should call them and tell them to get behind me. Yeah, they should. But consider this. What do you think is happening with Nikki Haley right now? Don't you think there's a lot of big money, allegedly from Republicans, but really from people who are just rhinos? They're just deep staters. They say, we like the system the way it is. It's fixed. If we let Donald Trump get into office, he's going to dismantle the deep state. We can't have that. We're making big money on this. And the same kind of people that back back Nikki Haley say, we'll give you a pile of money if you'll just go out there and keep Trump from becoming the nominee. And guess what? Their money has been flushed down the toilet. It's not going anywhere. And I think we're going to see the proof of that in New Hampshire as voters cast ballots. And I, I'm going to predict that Donald Trump is going to win big. And Nikki Haley is going to finish poorly, maybe poorly enough for her to be out of the race altogether after tonight. And if not tonight, wait till South Carolina, her home state, She's going to walk into her home state and lose big there. And the smart Republican folks, the folks who've got the money and the power and the influence from behind the scenes, they're saying, well, we're going to get rid of Trump and then we're going to have this rhino run instead. And they're they're basically trying to ensure that Joe Biden gets another four years in office, even while his own party says we don't even like him as the nominee. And that same kind of thinking is apparently going on in Arizona. Big money people who say, oh, Carrie Lake. Now, I'd ask you this question. Just think about this in theory. Would they be trying to buy her out of the election if they thought she was going to lose? I mean, if these people do not like the idea of Carrie Lake running for U.S. Senate right now, do you think they're going to like it any better in a couple of years? No, they want to buy her out of the race. And if they're saying, look, what would it take? campaign contributions, whatever it takes, we want to buy you out of the race. They're only doing it because they think she's going to win. And I think they're probably right. I think Carrie Lake got cheated in the governor's race. And by the way, before you call me an election denier, not today, but tomorrow, I'm going to play you a soundbite of Joe Biden from this week speaking in Virginia, saying, and now here's the real governor of the state of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe. Well, as we all know, Terry McAuliffe screwed up badly. He was a bad candidate, not to mention a Democrat, and he ran for governor of Virginia, and he lost. And he lost in part because he stood on a stage at one point and said parents have no business telling the schools what to educate their kids. I mean, does that tell you why a guy like that would lose? And then Joe Biden shows up more than a year later, and he shows up in front of a crowd and says, this is the real governor. Now, if Donald Trump says the 2020 election was flawed and it was, then he's an election denier. 
And he needs to be put on trial and thrown in prison, according to the Democrats. But if Joe Biden stands on a stage and says, here's the real governor of Virginia, the guy who lost big time, Terry McAuliffe, and the president of the United States who will condemn any so-called election denier who comes from the right. But if Joe Biden himself stands up there and denies the outcome of the Commonwealth of Virginia's election, then that's okay. Can you smell the double standard? Because it stinks to high heaven. In any case, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday. It's going to be a lively election year. We can already tell that. And I've told you what I think is going to happen in New Hampshire. I think it's curtains for Nikki Haley. Although, who knows, she might she might make her all, all the way to her own home state, and then she can lose even bigger. But Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. Donald Trump's going to be elected president. God knows what's going to happen to Joe Biden. you got the Lars Larson Show. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the Chinese Communist Party's quest for bioengineering dominance of planet Earth, and I know that sounds like the beginning to a bad movie, includes alarming plans for specific ethnic genetic attacks. I want to talk to our friend Frank Gaffney about that. Frank, of course, founded the Center for Security Policy, author most recently of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends, Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. Uh, this gotta, is a bad movie. It, it, it's a bad movie in which, you know, if you wrote the script 10 years ago and said, so the Chinese are going to harvest biological information. Maybe they'll do it through COVID test kits that are manufactured in China. Maybe they'll do it through an Olympics. But whatever way, they'll get the information and then they will engineer viruses and diseases that are specific to specific ethnic or racial groups, and then they can go out and kill people off selectively on planet Earth. Is it really that crazy? It's crazy, all right, and yet I think it's all too real. This, If it were just a bad movie, it'd be one thing. Um, it's a bad movie whose plot we can anticipate and whose ending will be tragic if it's uh, left to run its course. Uh, Lars, this is the thing. Um, the Chinese have been beavering away in all of these areas, in addition to test kits and you know testing of athletes at the Olympics and so on. Uh, this, <laughs> this product called 23andMe has been wildly subscribed to by Americans interested in figuring out the genealogy of their families and so on. Well, you've just transferred an immense amount of genetic tech, you know, information to uh, the Chinese big data aggregation system. Uh, similarly, if um, you've been on TikTok, they've been hoovering it up from you there, and a lot of other health information, and by the way, a lot of other private information, all of which goes into this same maw of the Chinese Communist Party's um, effort to take that kind of data and weaponize it against us. And and the creepy thing is, uh, you know, this is not going on um, 
you know, behind the secret uh, walls of, you know, a, a level four bio-warfare facility in Wuhan, China. We've seen that movie, too, haven't we? And we know how yep, that went. Yep, we have. But th- this, this is a problem that the Chinese have been talking about in their open source scientific uh, research journals for years now. They're going to figure out how to ethnically target biological weaponry against certain groups of people. And I fear, Lars, that the evidence is now overwhelming that at least one of the target sets for all of that stuff is us. Yep. Well, by the way, Frank, would it surprise, I mean, if you ran that in the, in the United States and said, hey, there are U.S. labs that are coming up with genetically targeted viruses, you might say, well, first of all, we don't think that's going to happen. But which group would you, I mean, we're a polyglot country. We have every race, every, every ethnicity, and these days, every pronoun. But in China, there are specific groups I can imagine the Chinese, the Chinese communists going after tomorrow if they thought they had the tool to be able to kill en masse, you know, with, without and say, well, it's just a disease that happened to sweep through, say, Tibetans or maybe the Uyghur mm-hmm. Muslims, you know, just yeah. happened to hit that population group the hardest. And uh, and, and they wouldn't blink an eye because they treat their own yeah. people like cannon fodder, don't they? Well, they have, yes. A hundred million of them or so have been murdered by the Chinese Communist Party since it uh, emerged on the scene. And then there's the 400 million more they boast of having murdered in the womb, mostly baby girls as part of their population control stuff. But, Lars, here's the thing. This is taking place at a particularly alarming moment, and that is when we've got it's anybody's guess how many, but uh, I think it's reasonable to say probably several divisions worth of young, fit, unaccompanied, military-aged men from China who have poured across our open southern border. And by the way, we have also uncovered, as you know, a laboratory, a bio lab, yep. as it's been called, Going in, in California. Reedley, California. Yeah, yep. and there's every reason to believe there are more of them. Well, if those guys turn out to be special forces of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and there turn out to be more of those bio labs packed with pathogens, it, like, for example, Ebola, which has about a 90% mortality rate. In fact, one of my colleagues says, you know, if you get Ebola, you die, period. This end of story. But the point is, if the purpose of all of this the the bioengineering, yes, the the targeting of certain ethnicities or or races or national populations, if you will, yes, the Reedley Lab and its sister labs elsewhere, perhaps, or the guys who know how to disseminate this stuff, not just by having some elderly person from Wuhan cough on you, but through aerosol, you know, devices that um, get them widely disseminated and with great effect. Well, this looks a lot like the plan that was laid out by the then defense minister of China 20 years ago. His name was General Qi Hao Chen. And he said that the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party um, in the early 1990s, Deng Xiaoping, the guy who brought us Tiananmen Square, by the way, yep. had given the biological warfare program of China, illegal though it may be, the mission of what? Depopulating the United States. So that it can be colonized by China. 
And you imagine this. This is all in furtherance of. It's a very bad movie. Well, and Frank, it doesn't even seem that the Biden administration has any curiosity at all when you say, well, uh, we've got all these people coming in. They're coming from Haiti and and other similar unpleasant countries around around uh, Central America, South America, uh, Latin America. And you say there are people coming in from Cuba. They're coming in from Guatemala, El Salvador, et cetera. And then it becomes the cover for entries from 143 countries around the world that have been identified by the Customs and Border Protection. So this isn't just me saying it. CBP says that's who we're encountering. And you say, so people are somehow making their way from communist China all the way to our border. So flying into somewhere in Central or South America or even Mexico and then coming up and entering the country. And you say, well, they're seeking asylum and refugee status. And you say, these are fighting age men without wives, without children. So they fled their home country and just abandoned their families behind in communist China. Does that make sense to anybody? When you hear about people seeking refuge, you say, well, I came and I brought my whole family. How is it we just coincidentally ended up with thousands of of fighting age Chinese men entering? And how did they get here? And you would think at some point the Biden administration would say, well, let's find out where did those people fly into? Where did they fly out of? Did they come here with the assistance of the Chinese Communist Party or they just somehow scare up a few thousand bucks and the ability to walk out of communist China, get on a flight somewhere, fly to somewhere in our hemisphere and then find the resources to come up and cross our border? Does that make sense that that's just, you know, people who said, I think I'll leave communist China and and that just happened. How How does that make any sense at all? Well, of course, it doesn't, Lars. And and if you add in a couple of other details that are relevant, I think it makes it even more improbable. You don't get out of communist China's general rule without the permission of the party. But people like Michael Yan, who's uh, been watching these guys flowing through the Darien Gap, or others like Todd Benzman, who's seen them coming across the border itself, uh, they're noticing that it's not just that these are Chinese young men of fighting age and so on, unaccompanied. They're very fit. They have, you know, kind of military crew cuts. They seem to be moving in groups, units. They seem to be carrying pretty much the same kind of kit. All of those are what they call in the intelligence business clues Yep. as to who these guys actually are. And then on top of that, Lars, they can talk about the Biden administration. One of the things we learned from the Daily Caller the other day was that the Biden administration in April of last year actually issued a directive to the Customs and Border Patrol personnel that you reduce the number of questions that these guys are subjected to from 40 to five yep they cut it back dramatically that's frank gaffney frank we're going to stay in touch in the meantime founder of the center for security policy author of the indictment prosecuting the chinese communist party and friends for crimes against america china and the world and it seems the crime is ongoing it's a tuesday and you're listening to the lars larson show the lars larson show political climate. He's the steamroller. This 
is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our poll on X, what we used to call the Twitter poll, the poll on X now. Would you welcome an illegal alien to come live in your home? And if you think that's a crazy suggestion, we pointed out that in Boston, Massachusetts, they've already asked people to free up room in their homes to house illegal aliens. And now, Illinois, at a city council meeting of Naperville, Naperville, Illinois, One council member suggested his idea to support the migrants, what the rest of us know are illegal aliens, coming through the city. Uh, Councilman Josh McBroom recommended a sign-up sheet for local families who are interested in housing migrants. We hear from people that we should do more. We have a very affluent community, a lot of big homes. He said there was an increasing pressure for the suburbs to do our part. I'm hearing stories about little kids at train stations without coats on. I'm not going to support using other people's money to house or aid. I do know there are a lot of people who care. I think it's a compassionate community. How many signups do you suppose he's getting? Would you welcome an illegal alien or two or three to live in your home? I would say no to that. They're not supposed to be here. They are more disposed to be criminals. And in fact, by coming into our country illegally and everything else that goes with illegal aliens, um, I just think that would be terribly hazardous to grant people space in your home. And you're aiding and abetting Joe Biden's invasion of America. So I'm going to say no. You can vote any way you like. At Lars Larson Show uh, on, on X. Also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in. I joined a long time ago. You should too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Yesterday, we were talking about the fact that the NFL has decided one more time to play the so-called Black National Anthem at the Super Bowl. And I said, do you support having a separate national anthem only for black Americans? 97% of you said no. Only 3% of you said yes. And those are the kind of naysayers I love to talk to. In fact, Joy is a naysayer. We hear from her occasionally. Hey, Joy, uh, what do you and I disagree about today that makes you a naysayer? Well, I don't know if it's a, well, it is a disagreement, but it's more of a question. I'm relatively new to listening to conservative or right-wing radio shows and such. It was when Trump was elected that I thought, i got to get out of my more liberal bubble than my parents and everyone else. Um, How very diverse of you, Joy. (laughs) Well, I grew up with uh, my dad, mom and dad, very, um, I think, kind of surprisingly were Democrats. Um, and then, so that was my influence as a child. And then I lived in the Bay area and that'll do it to you. (laughs) Well, the thing that I'm not sure about now that I listen to a lot of the, especially the radio shows and such is that what was said at the beginning is, Oh, the left hates America. Oh, there's this there, you know, we're just, we're terrible on the left. And, and, but I listen to your and others, and I would, if I believed everything you're saying, I'd be in a constant state of fear. Um, I'd have my guns, I'd have my food, um, the kits that... Do you I'm have any guns, Joy? Any emerge- no. Um, okay, that's but sad. I, just, I, I wish you would exercise your... But hold on, Joy, you're going I'm, on I'm at at a considerable almost- length. What do we disagree about today that makes you a well, nation? What I, no, this was more of a question. 
party always been this party of fear that every country is going to get us? People coming into our country are terrorists that that you don't send your kids to schools or to colleges, the fear of what they're going to learn. Has that always been the basis for the Republican or conservative well, party? Hold on. Are, just- we t- are, are you saying we're just here to scare people or are we preparing people saying, be aware of this hazard? I mean, I, I have an eight-year-old grand, almost eight-year-old granddaughter. And if we're, we were out walking outside and there was snow in my neighborhood, and I said, we have to be really careful walking along here because it's slippery. I could have just said, hey, go ahead, run out to the mailbox. And she falls down three or four times. And I say, well, that'll learn her. I don't approach things that way. I'd like to prepare people. So can you tell me anything you've ever heard on this show that is designed only to scare people and not to prepare them to say, we have an invasion of illegal aliens. We have a government that seems on the left to want to get rid of every reliable source of energy in the country and things that we have been blessed with, great big reserves of energy, and stop using that and leave people in the dark. Is that just to scare people or is that to prepare them, saying, be aware there are people making decisions allegedly in your, on your, for your benefit where they are allowing an invasion of your country, they're taking away the energy you need to conduct your life, which one, where does it cross from being scary to being preparing? Well, see, I would look at it the opposite, is that if you see resources that are finite and you don't want them to be all used up, then you Can you tell me one of those finite resources? Energy. Joy, can you tell me oh, one finite is, resource? Oil is finite. You're not going to have it Hold on, forever. hold on, Joy. I'm going to take somebody from your side of the aisle. Jimmy Carter said, we will be out of oil by the 1990s. Joy, are we out of oil today? Well, that's because that he, on the left, <laughs> we were, we've been working to have alternatives. And no, you are, no but hold on, change. Joy. Do, do the alternatives work today? Is, is yes. there any yes. set of numbers? Hold on. Let me finish the question. Is there any set of numbers in which windmills and solar panels will supply the needs of this country? But they are supplying some of the needs. And so a you tiny don't, fraction. Uh, you, joy, Joy, but, if you, I assume you have an income of some kind. If I said, Joy, go out and pick up pop cans by the side of the road. And you said, well, I'm only going to pick up, if I worked at it all day long, I'd pick up $5 worth of pop cans. And I say, well, that's some income. And you say, $5 doesn't get me to the end of the first day of the month. So if you say solar and wind are now producing about 8% of the national grid, fossil is about 50% of the grid, and they want to get rid of it. If you got rid of 50% of your income and you replace it with 5%, Joy, guess where you're going to be? But my question is more, is this, let's say, step back 20 years. Is this what the Republican, even 10 years, is this what the Republican Party was? I don't. I don't, it, it just, as the I Republican said, I mean, Party wants people to be independent. The Democrat Party wants them to be dependent. The Republican Party no, wants he, a prosperous America. The Democrats, by all, by all measures right now, under Joe Biden, wants America to be a devastated economic and energy and political and military, a devastated landscape. And I'd back that up I, with... Pro- oh. I, that that is complete. I mean, you look at Silicon Valley. Okay, let's no hold on. Don't 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 change the subject, Joy. If we went back four years, 
Were we well, in more wars? My question. Okay, what's the I, question? And I'll answer it. That I I think that if listening to the right on the radio stations, on the news, anything what's else, what's the question? I think the the basis is fear mongering. No, it's not. You've created joy. If yes, I tell yes. you that ten million invaders have come into our country in the last three years, that's a statement of fact. If I tell you that Democrats are proposing that we abandon abundant energy in America and substitute short energy in America, that's a statement of fact. Now, if you find that fact scary, I find that fact something saying if there's a problem coming at me and the problem is an invasion of 10 million illegal aliens in three years, I want to prepare for that. If I'm told that my government masters plan to cut off energy supplies that are abundant in America now and replace it with shortages, I want to be prepared for it. Absolutely. Joy, we're trying to prepare you, not scare you. Back in a moment, we'll get to more of your calls. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. standing narrative that foreign state-sponsored threat actors, terrorists, prevent, present the most significant effect or threat to the election process. But it may be that artificial intelligence, which has ramped up dramatically, the technology has, in just the last couple of years, is this year's biggest threat. And I thought we'd talk about that with Matt Middlestead, who's a Mercatus Center Research Fellow and a technologist. Matt, good to have you back. Hi, Lars. Very good to be on tonight. How much of a threat is AI to the election process that, I mean, most Americans like me say, I want to cast my ballot and I want it to be meaningful. Is AI wiping that out? Well, in terms of actual voting, probably not. Although that said, in a few years, we could see AI generated malware causing some issues for election machinery. However, in the near term, I think the biggest threat is misinformation. Uh, ahead of the New Hampshire primary, we saw an audio clip of Joe Biden that was AI generated being used to, to, cold call people ahead of the primary, urging them not to vote. And this isn't per se a threat if people still go on and vote, but this could very much impact our electoral process, spread disinformation, spread uh, uncertainty among the electorate about the information that they need to to inform their votes and and to get to their polling place correctly. And this this is the type of thing that could really cause waves in coming years. Although it seems, Matt, I we've played the soundbite and I have the soundbite. It's it seems like kind of a ham handed approach to it to say, you know, it sounds like Joe Biden. And he's saying, oh, your your vote is important, but save it. Don't waste it on the primary. Save it for November. Now, Matt, do you think there's anybody in America who's so dim that they think, oh, I can't vote in the primary. I need to save that vote for November or that it's not important to vote on Tuesday. I mean, maybe there are voters out there that that simple minded, but I I don't know. Maybe they, if they're that simple and don't know anything about the election, then uh, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with them voting. Uh, but I, I think it was you're <laughs> right that it was. Well, and the other way, Matt, here's my test. Um, the the A.I. generated robocall um, had a, a man sounding like Joe Biden who managed to complete full sentences for 25 seconds. That's a perfect <laughs> test. That can't be Joe Biden by definition, right? So in, in general, I think 
with this specific instance of of this type of thing, this is a very early test of all this. I completely agree with you. I don't. I think you'd have to be pretty dim to to believe this. I mean, why would Joe Biden be calling people directly to tell them not to vote? Um, that's you know an extremely ham-handed attempt at influencing this electoral process. But you know, even still, I think we should be taking this moment, this very low impact event that really probably didn't change anything, as a lesson. This type of thing can happen, and maybe in the future there will be some sort of audio clip release that's fake or video clip even, or or some sort of attempt to mislead people about election information, uh, maybe from a poll worker, um, a voice that sounds like a poll worker or the Secretary of State or something, that might be a bit more believable, a bit more high quality, and, and perhaps... <laughs> better better uh, designed in terms of an attack. And that's something I think is not outside of the realm of possibility. So how do we go about sorting that out? Because, Matt, every time the powers that be, you know, like Joe Biden wanted to establish what we call the Ministry of Information or Ministry of Disinformation, they say, leave it to the government. We'll sort out what you should believe and what you shouldn't. Disbelieve everything except what we tell you to believe. That's almost as bad. In fact, in, in some ways, it's worse. Because they say, we'll, we'll tell you the stuff to believe. You just, you know, we're from the government. We're going to tell you what to believe. And, and I, don't, I don't believe them. Yeah, and so this is, you know, it's going to be a challenging environment moving forward. And I think as AI starts to introduce very, very believable audio clips and information sources into the information pool, the traditional problems we've already had with information are only going to get harder to parse. And I think what's going to be exceedingly important in the coming years is, first of all, people should be aware of this stuff. Most people, I think, at this point don't know that AI-generated audio is at this level of quality. And so I think the first step is people need to know that's out there so they can spot it. Now, right. obviously, the step, that's not quite enough, right? Nope. I think people, especially with very important things like your decision to vote, you should not trust necessarily the first thing you see, right? You should always verify Yes, this is the correct address of my polling place. Yes, this this news event that I that was potentially going to impact my vote, I found four other sources that showed that didn't actually happen. Um, you should really be doing this fact checking yourself and really making an effort to do that. And we always say this, right? But I think as these things really get to this critical level of of <laughs> disinformation potentially, uh, this is just going to be an important norm for people to really internalize. And, and make sure that you actually put this effort forward. Well, and the other thing is, and I, I think part of the problem is information tends to be very titillating. You know, you, you find, and I don't mean sexually titillating, I mean, uh, you know, just, just the, you know, wow, that's interesting. You hear something that sounds crazy. And these days I hear something crazy almost every day, and half of it turns out, turns out to be true. Uh, and so I tell my producers that I work with, whatever it is, the more extreme the claim, the more sources I'm going to want. Because if somebody said, well, Matt Middlestead's this nice guy, and uh, he he was at the Institute of Security Policy and Law, I'd say, okay, I can probably take for granted one report on that, because I think you were at the Institute for Security Policy and Law. And you know, But if somebody says, Matt Middlestead is a secret, uh, he's secretly building a fusion bomb in his garage, I say, well, if you're going to want me to believe that, I'm going to need a few sources, maybe more than a few. And so the more extreme the claim, you know, that, that Donald Trump will now welcome illegal aliens by the millions. Yeah, you want me to believe that even if you've got video and audio of somebody who looks like and sounds like Donald Trump saying that? I'm going to want a whole bunch of sources on that. 
And and that's maybe what should, people should do is just develop a healthy level of skepticism about everything they hear. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to have to, and it, it, trust me, this is going to take time because I'm not used to this type of media environment. You are not. None nope. of your listeners are. We're all going to have to figure out our own rules of thumb, our own tests that work. Uh, I think for low-level things like, is this the correct address of my auto mechanic? Well, that's going to be correct, right, in, in 99% of cases. But for things that involve, like, the president, um, and especially claims that really contrast everything that you've heard before, such as, you know, Donald Trump opening up the doors to all immigrants in the world, that's probably not true. And, you know, maybe it is. Weird things do happen, but you really should take that type of thing as the type of thing that you need to double, triple, quadruple check and actually do that work. And the other thing is the double, triple cross, because, Matt, when I saw that robocall, I thought, you know who would have planted that to their advantage? Um, liberals would have done it to say, see, the Trump people are trying to keep the Democrats from going to the polls. In other words, what it sounds like is Joe Biden saying to Democrats, don't go to the polls. What I see it as is you'll be able to use this as an excuse. You know, like the, unfortunately, the people who stage fake hate crimes against themselves to engender sympathy. And these days, I think if anybody needs sympathy, Joe Biden does. Matt Middlestead is at the Mercatus Center. He's a research fellow in technology and technologist. Matt, Matt, thanks very much. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a target-rich environment tonight. So before we get to the Joe Biden robocall, yes, we know it's fake. I want to talk about the bigger piece of information out there, and that is Carrie Lake of Arizona, who's running for the U.S. Senate. And apparently the Republicans, or at least some Republicans, tried to talk her out of doing that. I played the soundbite earlier. I can, uh, I can just shorthand it. She uh, she was asked by the chair uh, on this recording, and let's assume the recording is right, and we don't find out, no, he's denying that that was him. It could be. I mean, lots of things get faked up with AI and be prepared for all of that. But if the Republican Party chair of Arizona truly did offer Carrie Lake money, said name a number, and she says that would get me to drop out of the race, no, I'm not going to do it. I think that's the right response to give. The fact that the offer purportedly came from the Republican Party chair, not the Democrat Party chair, is significant as well. But Greg's got a thought about that about uh, out of Nevada. You heard my take on it. But, Greg, welcome to the program, and how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, my take is, I mean, we don't know a lot. This is just dropping now. But uh, listening to the phone call and listening to what he said, what sort of piqued my interest is just how, uh, so over the top, his uh, his offer was, was with no subtlety at all. It makes me suspicious, and you start to wonder, with the, considering 
uh, how things have been the last six years, whether or not he's actually uh, an informant or working for the feds. And I don't know if there's any criminal liability regarding a private citizen being offered money to not run. Uh, but at the minimum, well, PR disaster. You know what? You know what, Greg? I can tell you, I don't know about the state of, of Arizona. I don't know about your state, Nevada. But I know that in most states, if I went to, I have three great producers. Okay, I've got Joel, i got Donovan, and i got McKenzie. If I go to any of them and say it's really important that you vote this year, and they say, well, I don't know if I'm going to have time on Election Day, even though it's a mail ballot in my neck of the woods, if I said, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> if you guys make sure you vote, I don't care who you vote for, but you have to vote. Uh, if you vote, I'll take you all to dinner. That is a crime. That's a crime in many places. I can't say that it's all 50 states that it's a crime. But if you take anything of value in exchange for voting at all, for voting for a particular person or for even running for office. I mean, if I were crazy and I told, uh, say, Joel, uh, my associate producer, who uh, you, if you call the show, you talk to Joel uh, most of the time. And if I said, Joel, you ought to run for public office. If you'd run for public office, uh, I'd give you $100. That's a crime in many places. As I said, I can't say definitively that that's every state. But I don't think they were offering her the money personally. What they were saying, and, and this is a an important distinction, if I said, uh, if I was talking to a candidate for office, and he said, will you give some money to my campaign? I said, well, I might. Are you in favor of the Second Amendment unabashedly? And he said, I'm absolutely a 100% when it comes to the Second Amendment. I said, fine, I'll give $100 to your campaign. That is not a crime, because you're making a political contribution, and by the way, in in every federal race, all those contributions have to be documented, meaning they have to know, you have to report uh, to the Federal Election Commission who the money came from, you know, certain biological, I mean, certain information about the donor, you know, that it's Joe Schmo and he lives at this address and all that has to be reported. And then the campaign has to explain how the money got spent. You know, did you spend it on advertising or renting a van to transport election workers? Whatever it was, you have to explain right. where the money came from and where it went. If they were saying to her, and this appears to be what is purportedly true in this audio, audio of top Republican trying to bribe Kerry Lake not to run for Senate. Most of us hear a bribe as money going to you personally, you know, like Fannie Willis, who apparently gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to her boyfriend, uh, her, her paramour, that, that is a bribe, the way most people think of it. But if you're telling a political candidate, look, if you'll take a pause, which I think was wrong for them to ask her and right for her to refuse, if the recording is entirely legitimate, um, and we may hear more about that in the next 24 hours, if they're saying, look, drop out of the race right now, we don't want you to run right now, but when you run in two years, we're going to find millions of dollars to pour into your campaign. That can be legal and legitimate because campaigns and political action committees and the rest can legally take lots of money, you know, that, that gets bundled up for them as long as it's spent on the campaign and not on them personally. Does that make sense? Well, it could. Well, it could be. Yeah, it makes sense. But, it, but that was not said because the phone call was, was too short. 
Uh, but because of Carrie well, Lake's the whole phone on, call is a lot know, longer. We but we're not going to. But Greg, not. the whole phone call is a lot longer, and the recording is a lot longer because I think, and this is important too, that they wanted this in context because I could take a slice out of almost any conversation and make you sound as guilty as sin or as pure as the driven snow. I mean, there's there are ways to edit things so that it would sound like you were a criminal or sound like you were the best guy that people had ever heard of. But having said that. I, I like that they released a big, huge chunk of seven minutes of this conversation so you understand what was going on. And would it be unusual, Greg, I have a feeling that behind the scenes and somewhat legitimately, I'd be surprised if in Nevada, the next time you have a governor's race, uh, that there aren't 10 people who are thinking of running for governor. And if there are big money people who say, by the way, don't run this time around, we're going to back so-and-so. But if you decide to run for the next term, you know, then we'll be ready to back your campaign. Is that an an illegal uh, offer? I don't think it is. Does it happen all the time? I'm willing to bet it is. It does. And, Greg, if you don't think that behind the scenes um, conversations with people like Nikki Haley are had, where I'd be willing to bet some of her biggest backers who've pumped a ton of money into her campaign to try to displace Donald Trump, they've said to her, if you do reasonably well in New Hampshire, then we'll continue to provide money for your campaign. Not personal money, but for the campaign. If you don't, we're not backing you. And and those kind of deals, I'm sure that those conversations happen all the time. And is it wrong that well, they do? Those, I don't think so. No, I think I, I think those conversations are happening every day, Like, and I totally get it. And I think that's just the way uh, it is. And in most, as slimy as it is, Sometimes sounds on the surface, it's they're they're really not so inappropriate. Uh, but my thought was in this particular case, I was just a little more suspicious than, than your standard. Hey, we'll back you if you do X, Y, and Z. I, I thought this was a little more of an offer of personal cash. No, I, I, I in fact, I'm willing to bet. I don't know Carrie Lake's finances, but I'm willing to bet she's not worried about paying the rent. And so in most cases, what these people who seek political office, for right or wrong, are looking for is backing for their campaign, not money personally. I mean, if you want to look at money personally, again, take a look at Fannie Willis. Hey, maybe I can give my boyfriend 600 grand of the public's money, and then we'll take some of it and fly off to some nice vacation spots. That's the Democrats you're thinking about, the Republicans. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. Control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and always a pleasure to welcome back our medical go-to guy, and that's Dr. Henry Miller. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Lars. I got to tell you something. The uh, polls closed in New Hampshire about 20 minutes ago, so I got to update people on where, where we are right now. 
and it's uh, it it started out about fifty fifty before we get into talking about medical matters, uh, and it's sliding uh, the other direction for Nikki Haley. Trump's now uh, with what four percent of the vote counted uh, at fifty four percent, and Haley's down around forty five. So. And, and it keeps sliding that direction. So we'll we'll see how it goes, but I'll update people as they go along. But in New Hampshire, polls closed 20 minutes ago. 4% of the votes are in. Trump is at 53-8. Nikki Haley is at 45-7. It appears the deep state's idea of bumping off Donald Trump is not working so far, but we'll find out more as the hours go on. Doc, uh, let's talk about genetically engineered animals. And is this something we really need? Because a lot of us... I mean, you and I have talked about GMO before, and I think we've talked about some of the successes of that. But now they're starting to get into territory that that may actually raise people's concerns when we start messing with the design of animals as well as plants. Should we be concerned? Well, I'll tell you, Lars, there are concerns and there are concerns. Uh, What a lot of scientists and people in the ag community are really concerned about is bird flu, avian flu. Uh, in uh, Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco, um, the poultry breeders have had to kill coal, as they put it, um, more than a million birds in the last few months because of outbreaks of bird flu. And what happens is when uh, a single bird is infected in a flock, they kill the whole flock to prevent the spread. Um, and uh, it's it's a terrible menace in in the um, uh, chicken and egg community, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, it also uh, presents a potential hazard to humans because um, you you can get uh, the um, arrival of new uh, varieties of, of flu virus um, that infect humans and can spread from person to person. And potentially cause a, a pandemic. Um, so uh, it, it flu is an interesting beast, which I used to work on when I was in grad school. And the, what makes it uh, different from most other viruses is that it has uh, seven pieces of RNA that comprise its genome. The, those pieces are sort of analogous to chromosomes. And if you get simultaneous infection, um, of, say, uh, a human or a pig of two different kinds of of flu viruses, say a human virus and a pig virus, you can get reassortment uh, of those seven um, chromosome-like chunks of RNA and get an entirely new flu virus that nobody and no animal has immunity to. And that's the real hazard. That's what people are concerned about. And we have had uh, spread of, um, of even these non-reassorted viruses to, uh, to humans in the past 20 years. So how do you pre- prevent that or, or protect against that? You're saying that if, if say, chickens, uh, which I love chicken, uh, were engineered in such a way, then those viruses couldn't go after them? Well, a lot of us like chickens. There, there have been eight billion, uh, uh, eight billion a year are produced in the U.S. alone. Uh, there are two uh, essential approaches. You, you can't uh, physically uh, prevent the spread readily because wild birds pick it up and transmit it from one farm to another or one part of the country to another. So there are two ways that you can prevent it. One is vaccination, but as you'll appreciate, with 8 billion birds a year 
just for eating chicken and another $300 million for uh, providing eggs, it's just prohibitive. You just can't inoculate that many chickens. So right. what scientists have done is to develop uh, genetically engineered um, strains of chickens that are resistant uh, to the virus. Uh, and this has been done by a group at the University of Edinburgh using the new CRISPR techniques. Uh, and the way that they've done this is very ingenious. You know, viruses uh, that need the host um, uh, synthetic machinery in order to uh, re replicate and proliferate. And so the scientists removed or modified one of the essential uh, proteins that viruses, that flu viruses need in order to replicate inside cells. Uh, it turned out that uh, the viruses uh, were clever and they morphed on to uh, a couple of other proteins in the uh, chicken cells. And so the scientists then um, mutated those so that the virus could no longer use them. So that's the general approach. Now, and, do, you, uh, do you ever get to a point, though, where the virus doesn't figure out a way against the block that you put up? Because to some extent, I realize I'm drawing from a non-scientific source. But you remember the flaw you know, with the uh, with the uh, the first, uh, you know, the first Jurassic Park movie or even the second one where they said, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about these. They're they're all they're all females. There are no males. And then you say, oh, well, you know, nature finds a way, you know, to quote the great Jeff Goldblum, um, you know, that, that it figures a way. And I guess what I what I'd say is the medical model for that. And, Doc, you correct me if I'm wrong. You had uh, uh, staph aureus. You know, it's everywhere and you get infections. So they said, oh, we'll treat it with methicillin. And sure enough, soon enough, we have something called methicillin-resistant staph aureus, right, MRSA, and, uh, or MRSA, I guess you should call it. And you say, mm -hmm. so if we engineer the animals to be resistant, does that mean that the virus says, well, I'm still going to figure out a way to prosper because that's what, what life, or in the case of viruses, they're not technically alive. Uh, they're going to figure a way around it. And when they do, they might be even tougher because methicillin-resistant staph aureus is, is a nasty customer, Right. Absolutely, and 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 we fight uh, we fight the uh, the battle against antibiotic resistance all the time. Uh, and you've asked a great question, so we know we'll see um, the um, if we have um, mutations in three of the proteins that are in the um, that are in the chicken cells and and in these new strains of chickens uh, that might uh, defeat the virus for. Uh, years or even decades, and that's a whole lot better than the situation that we're in now in jeopardy. So, but but is there any way to prevent getting into a situation where you've engineered around to try and corral the virus and say, okay, you can't infect this chicken, and the virus uh, and the virus doesn't have a brain, but if it did, it would say, no, I'm going to figure a way around that, and that every time you figure a way to block it. It's going to figure a new way around, except you're going to be reducing the number of things you have available to say, well, we'll block this. Do you run out of things to block it on at some point? Uh, not, well, not necessarily, because if you know the mechanism of action that the virus has, uh, has used, has developed, uh, you, can, uh, you can go after that. Otherwise, Lars, it's going to be uh, fish and beef for you, I'm afraid. Well, I, I would I would hate to lose chicken. Tell me this: what are the regulatory barriers to this? 
Yeah, the regulatory barriers are, are imposing because of unwise regulatory policies that FDA has had for 30 years. And that's that uh, in, instead of uh, treating uh, these developments like a conventional uh, breeding, which of course is is rampant in in chickens and and dogs and uh, and all sorts of animals, cows, uh, they treat the animals as though they were veterinary drugs. Yep. The, the whole animal is treated like veterinary drugs, and the and the reviews go on forever because they want to see generation after generation after generation of these for uh, safety and efficacy. And so the uh, the first genetically engineered uh, animal that came down the pike is the Aqua Advantage salmon, which yep. just grows twice as fast. That took a 22-year review for FDA to finally decide that it was safe and, and could be marketed. Dr. Miller, I appreciate it. That's Dr. Henry Miller. He uh, works at the American Council on Science and Health. He's former founding director of the FDA's Office on Biotechnology, medical doctor, molecular biologist, and now at the American Council on Science and Health. Doc, thank you very much. Coming up, I'll get to your phone calls and emails and an interesting death row case. The Lars Larson Show. Somewhere around 400 feet off the ground. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It is a pleasure to be with you. I got to tell you this, the latest results in from New Hampshire, the polls closed about 35 minutes ago. And on the Republican side, Donald Trump, with 11% of the votes counted, has 53%. Nikki Haley at 46-4. Ron DeSantis at half a point. He got 200 votes. Ryan Binkley at four. And everybody else got less, including people like Chris Christie and others who aren't even in the race anymore. On the Democrat side, and here's interesting uh, results, uh, Joe Biden right in. Well, it's counting at zero right now. But that's because with 17% of the vote in and counted, 74% is unprocessed write-in votes. So Joe Biden's doing reasonably well for a guy who's being written into the ballot. And Dean Phillips, the guy who's running as a Democrat, and says he actually talked to some Trump voters. And he said they're actually very nice people and very welcoming. And he says he his own party, he thinks, has kind of lost its way. Marianne Williamson Interesting. She keeps running 4.3%. So uh, it looks like Biden will end up with 74% if the results track that way. On the Republican side now uh, with 12%, I'm not going to do this all night. I just want to give you an update. At this hour, 12% of the votes counted, 53% for Donald Trump, 46 for Nikki Haley. If she keeps that number all evening, that looks like a pretty respectable result. Um, but we'll see. And we'll see whether or not the money people behind Nikki Haley, who wanted her to take out Donald Trump, uh, it sounds like almost all of the DeSantis vote went to Donald Trump. Probably she got a piece of it, but that's where we are right now. I'll be glad to get your calls at 866-HAY-LARS. And I do want to tell you about this Supreme Court decision, uh, because the Supreme Court yesterday agreed to take up a really crazy, extraordinary, as they call it, appeal of an Oklahoma death row inmate named Richard Glossop. 
a man who even the state attorney general says should not be executed. You heard that right, should not be. Last May, the justices halted the pending execution while legal challenges played out. He's been behind bars for 26 years. Now, what's funny is CNN says Glossop has endured 26 years behind bars, nine execution dates, three last meals, and two independent investigations that have raised doubts about his conviction. And the Attorney General of Oklahoma has told the Supreme Court that the state has recently made the difficult decision to confess that they made some errors in his case. They have not said uh, they support vacating the conviction. Uh, The case began in 1997, so 27 years ago, um, when Glossop's boss at a, uh, a hotel in Oklahoma City was murdered. Glossop was the hotel's manager. He was accused of conspiring with another man to carry out the murder. The other man confessed to the crime and claimed that Glossop had paid him to carry out the killing. Glossop was tried and convicted based largely on the testimony of his co-defendant. He's been on death row ever since, fighting to prove his innocence and avoid execution. Well, but so far, no luck. So we'll see where that one goes. Let's go to Angie in Nevada. Hey, Angie, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday, uh, New Hampshire's primary day. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, I got a couple things on my mind. I'm just going to throw a few points out there, um, ask a question, and then have you take it off. Sure. So have you take off with it. So I'm curious what you think about the Democratic spin that will be put on Texas' defiance of the Supreme Court ruling on the razor wire removal. You notice that they're still putting up razor wire in Texas, and God bless Texas for doing that. If Joe Biden can ignore the Supreme Court, I guess Texas can too, right? That's exactly what I was going to say, because this smells to me no different than Biden defying the Supreme Court over student loan forgiveness. And he keeps bringing it out there, even though the Supreme Court has ruled. So I hope the Democrats remember that. I hope they do, too. And Angie... I'd ask, I don't know whether my moral argument has has any weight with people, because I know there are people with student loans, and they, uh, you know, like any debt that anybody owes, I wish somebody would pay off my mortgage. But I wouldn't take the money illegitimately. And as far as I'm concerned, if a young man or woman said, I want to go to college, and America effectively as, as a country said, okay, go to college. And they said, I want to borrow an amazing amount of money, sometimes tens, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I'm going to be trained in some profession, and I'll pay the money back. And then that man or woman later says, yeah, it turns out I didn't like the profession as well as I thought I would, and that happens. Um, I wanted to be a doctor or a nurse, or I wanted to do something else, and now I don't want to do that, and I don't want to pay the money back. Angie, can you imagine? Sounds like Angie's at work. Sorry about that, Angie. Can you imagine anybody, if if you had a friend of yours, or say a family, a friend of yours has a son or daughter who wants to go to college, and let's say you're very well healed, Angie. You got a bunch of money, and and your friend's daughter or son says, "I'd I want to be this. I want to be a nurse. Will you loan me fifty grand so I can go to school?" And so the son or daughter goes to school, comes out with a nursing degree, and then decides, "You know, I'm not crazy about being a nurse. I think I'll do something else." But I've still got this fifty grand, and they say, "Angie, Aunt Angie, will you forgive the loan?" Can you imagine somebody asking you for that personally, saying, would you mind just no, forgetting about that, the 50 grand you loaned me? Exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, the other point I'll make to this 
is there so much emphasis being put on college when what we really have a need for are the trade skills, the, the yep. skills trade, the plumbers, the electricians, you know, the landscapers and lawn people. That's what we really need. And because we don't have manufacturing in this country anymore, which is a crying shame, and I hope Trump brings it back, but, you know, we, we need those skilled tradesmen out there. So if anybody's listening and, and you're a young person, you know, in high school and looking for a direction to take other than college, I would definitely recommend you check those out. Well, can I tell you something, Angie? Um, a number of years ago, my stepson, who went into the Marines, served four years, and he came out, and he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. He's pretty well figured it out now. But at the time, we said, you ought, to, you ought to do something in the trades. And that's where he is. He just went a different direction than we thought he was going to go. But that's fine. That's his decision. But we said uh, at one point he was interested in, in maybe being becoming an electrician. And uh, we said, okay, how do you? And we figured out there were some great programs, not because I pulled any influence or anything like that, not that I have any influence, but there was a program, and I think this is probably true in almost every state, there was both a union program and a non-union program, and they were pretty comparable. And what they said was, you go to work. Remember, this is close to, this would have been about six years ago, okay? he You can go to work for a small electrical company, and if they put you on, you basically become the gopher, you know, the person who goes and, you know, uh, does all the heavy lifting. When the electrician says, hey, I need that big panel moved over here, you do that. And the starting wage was about 30 grand. And you say, well, that, that doesn't sound like a lot, you know, it's, you know, depending on where you live in America. And they said, yeah, but while you're doing that, you go to school. And school in that case, yep. uh, cons- either the union program or the non-union program, uh, said, right. you go to class, I think it was three hours, one night a week. You say, okay. And uh, so at the end of four years, you've got how much in? You've got, I think it's 800 hours of classroom and 8,000 hours of on-the-job training. So that's pretty good. Where, are, where am I after four years? You're a journeyman. And you say, well, what happens while you're going to school? And they say, well, every six months, as long as you work at the, elect, you know, at the electrician, at the electrical contractor, and you do this schooling one night a week, you know, and the total cost was $240 a term, so about 80 bucks a month. I mean, something, I said, I'll pay the 80 bucks a month if you want to go that direction. Well, every six months, your paycheck went up a buck 50 an hour. That's $3,000 a year. So the first, you know, you start at 30 grand. In six months, you're at 33. In, in 12 months, you're at 36. In uh, 18 months, you're at 39. You know, and by the time you're all done, you're making $38 an hour or about $80,000 a year. And today you can't touch a journeyman electrician for, for less than about 100 You got the Lars Larson Show. So you don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday night, which is primary night in New Hampshire, and a pleasure to welcome John Daniel Davidson, senior editor at The Federalist. John, welcome back. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So it sounds like uh, there were two groups that kind of want Nikki Haley to do well in New Hampshire uh, in today's primary, and that would be the Democrats and the Republican establishment. Uh, Have I simplified it too much or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. The uh, neither one of which uh, represents actual Republican voters, I should note. Agreed. And and why do they, I mean, why do they want that so badly? Because she doesn't seem like she's she's doing very well as a candidate. In fact, I was going to tell you that the uh, you, you're probably watching the results like I am. Uh, what is it? 17 percent of the votes in on the Republican side. Trump's got 54. Nikki Haley's got 45. Where do you think the uh, do you have a, an idea of where the drop dead number is, where she either continues on to South Carolina, her home state or or the big money people say, oh, it was worth a try. We spent 31 million on New Hampshire, uh, but now we're going to move on to other things because you didn't get it. Is 45 enough to get it done for her? I think that she'll have to come within 10 points or so for her to, you know, call it a, the, you know, victory. Uh, right. We saw in Iowa, she finished third and then, uh, you know, declared it a two person race. Turns out she was right about that. Maybe, it, you know, maybe all she didn't know it at the time. Uh, but I think if the results come in close to where the polls were going into this primary election, I think it's over for her, um, and I think that's where we're going to end up tonight. I'm not in the predictions business. Like 2016 taught me not to do that, <laughs> but uh, my gut is telling me that we're going to end up close to where the polling ended. Well, so tell me this. I want you to help my audience understand this because you've covered this. Why is it that the establishment, the consultant class, and I would add to that probably the deep state, wants a candidate like Nikki Haley in preference to somebody like Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Because she'll do and say exactly what they want. Sounds like the reason the deep. Yeah. I mean, just listen to what Nikki Haley says. Her her positions as a Republican candidate make no sense. They're, They're totally out of line with what actual Republican voters think and want out of uh, out of a political party and certainly out of a presidential candidate or presidential administration. Look, the reason the deep state, the administrative state, whatever you want to call it, the reason that they hate Donald Trump and will do anything to keep him out of office is because he represented uh, everything they don't want to see in American politics, which is a politics that is responsive to the concerns of ordinary people. And the concerns of ordinary people, the, the, the interests of ordinary people, are at odds with the interests of the moneyed elite uh, that, that fund candidates like Nikki Haley. And that's true of foreign policy. It's true of immigration. It's true of trade all the way across the board. Uh, that, that's why there was such opposition to Trump in 2016 and well, 2020, and that's why there's such opposition to him now. I'm talking to John Dan- Daniel Davidson, who's a senior editor at The Federalist. One of the things that struck me the most is immigration's been one of my, and I'm a Trump guy, so just so full disclosure, but I've been on immigration since basically since about 97 as a talk show host, but that's when I started. And I had producers at the time who said, is this really that big a deal back then? And I said, yeah, it's 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 a threat to the United States. And one day it's going to become one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest uh, existential threat to the country. And I think it is right now. And we've seen, you know, now counting uh, 8.5 million direct encounters, 1.7 million gotaways, and God knows how many that weren't even gotaways because the Border Patrol never saw them. 
but north of 10 million right. people. And another uh, in another year, we'll be probably 3 million past that. And then four more years of Joe Biden, we'll be looking at prop- close to 10 percent of the adult population of the U.S. In, in terms of the number of illegals. And Nikki Haley comes out with all these statements that, where she's sh- showing the same kind of sympathy we hear from Democrats. Yeah, well, you have to want these people are just looking for a better life and they're not criminals and it's mean to say so and all that. They are illegally entering my country. That's a criminal act. They're working illegally in my country. That's a criminal act. They're, they're soaking up resources that Americans are already short of. How is that in any way, shape, or form uh, the position of a of a Republican? Yeah, the the position on immigration for any Republican candidate is a good litmus test to reveal uh, whether or not they sort of understand what time it is, right, and whether or not they are in tune with the actual Republican voter base, or whether they are in thrall to corporate and establishment interests in Washington, D.C., and in our large cities. And clearly, Nikki Haley has no idea what time it is. She doesn't understand the immigration issue. She doesn't know how to talk about it. This isn't really a question of whether or not, you know, of what kind of feelings we have toward people in other countries who have, you know, uh, face difficult circumstances. The fact is, we are facing a crisis at the border. The border is collapsing. Uh, and, And really, this is sort of a republic uh, you know, a, a republic ending event at, at the border, because if we can't enforce the border, if we can't say as a polity that America should be first and foremost for Americans, that, that, then we've actually got a lot bigger problems than just the border. Right. Yep. We're, we're facing an existential crisis as a country at that point. And Nikki Haley shows no signs of even understanding what the issue is about. No, she doesn't. And John, add to that when the state of Arizona says, hey, come down and register to vote. But you have to bring your proof of citizenship. On the other hand, if you don't have it, we'll still sign you up for all the federal races, which means president. And you say, hold on. If all these illegals end up being able to vote in places like Arizona or any other place in America, game over, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And clearly that's what Democrats would like to do. We see this in places like California and New York, where there's this push to allow illegal immigrants to vote in in municipal or local elections or even state elections. And that's sort of laying the groundwork for allowing them to be able to vote in federal elections. Um, and, And that really is part of a larger plan on the part of Democrats that they have been talking about for decades now. You know, you, you get called a conspiracy theorist if you talk about, uh, you know, the, the Great Reset or, you know, the, the Great Replacement. But th- this is actually something Democrats have talked about in great detail, their plan to shore up a permanent Democratic electoral majority by importing voters uh, in, in, the, in the sure uh, confidence that they will be Democrat voters because they are given benefits by Democrat politicians and policies. Uh, that that's something they haven't tried to hide. And so it's not crazy to point it out. And, and that's part of what we're seeing play out in real time right now. And that's why the big money is behind Nikki Haley, although I hope she gets her uh, her Waterloo tonight. Uh, John, thank you for, so much for the time. We'll look forward to having you back. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. That is John Daniel Davidson. He's one of the senior editors at uh, The Federalist. Uh, Glad to be with you on a Tuesday night. And at this point, the latest results out of New Hampshire, 54% for Donald Trump, just under 45% for Nikki Haley. This may be the end of the road for Nikki Haley, although who knows, maybe they'll write her some more checks. They spent $31 million in New Hampshire. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. You know, one of the big concerns a lot of us have is that Joe Biden has walked us into a lot of bad situations. A bad situation leaving Afghanistan, a bad situation in Ukraine, and now it sounds like a bad situation involving the island nation of Taiwan. And it is a country, despite, as far as I'm concerned, despite the fact that uh, the United States insists on kind of kowtowing to mainland China, you know, with its policy that says Taiwan's just a little breakaway part of our country and we'll have it back in our evil clutches as soon as we possibly can. And on that note, I want to introduce to you Director General Daniel Chen of the Taiwanese... I- Director Chen, can I call it the embassy in Seattle, or or are you allowed to call it an embassy? Oh, actually, we're more like a de facto uh, consulate general, but um, um, representing Taiwan. So even though people know us as a TICO, so it's not more the company, but actually it's a de facto consulate general of, Seattle, of Taiwan in Seattle. Yeah, because the director general of the consulate. In, in Seattle, not the embassy, because officially the United States in kowtowing to China doesn't officially recognize Taiwan to the point of even allowing you an embassy in the United States. Am I correct? Um, I, sort of. I, I, I so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about this. So Taiwan has had its presidential election, and it was quite a historic one. Would you mind telling my audience about why it's so significant, what happened in that election? Yeah, I think Lars is a very good question because uh, this time, I think in the year 2024, uh, over 40 countries and there are more than 70 elections around the world. And uh, Taiwan is lucky to have the first one uh, election. So despite all the uh, interference, we have a cyber attack, we have uh, disinformation, we have military threat, we have uh, economic coercion. But still, Taiwan has our, uh, you know, elect. A democratic election, which proved to the world that the democracy still works and also set a good example for the world so, so we can keep the hope uh, of the democracy. So I would say uh, the, this election is a finally uh, a victory of Taiwan's democracy. And the, and, and the winner of that election uh, is still, is, uh, as well as the, the majority of the Taiwanese people, believe that Taiwan is its own country and reject the notion that you're just part of mainland China, correct? Exactly. I think uh, the result of this section also tells you that I think the majority of people still uh, prefer to maintain the status quo. And also uh, we are adamant to uh, uphold our democracy. So uh, I think you are correct. 
How difficult is it to maintain that you are a free country with a self-determining government and voting elections against the pressures put on you by mainland China? China responded to the election, by the way, by saying Taiwan is part of China. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. They keep on saying that. I mean, no matter what they call, but still, it doesn't change the fact that we are kind of a uh, Taiwan is a sovereign state. Uh, we have our own uh, democracy. We have our own uh, diplomatic relations and even our military. So, I mean, Taiwan meets every uh, qualification to be a, a sovereign state. So no matter what uh, men in China uh, maintain, they even try to distort the uh, United Nations General Assembly, the Resolution 2758, uh, but still, I think uh, to many, many people around the world, they are pretty uh, sure that uh, Taiwan is a sovereign state. So, Just so uh, this time, sorry, sir. Yes, I'm sorry. No, sorry. Go okay. ahead. Yeah. So like this time, uh, we see so many uh, disinformation, this, this kind of so many maneuver from many China to to influence Taiwan. For example, uh, they even have our from our National Security Bureau. We found out that China funds the many, many poll companies to uh, make fake polls or fake numbers. They even have a fake social media try to influence the public uh, opinion. And also they even uh, threaten the Taiwan pop singer to speak uh, support of PRC directly. So, I mean, we wouldn't be surprised that uh, the PRC always try to exert their most to, to try to distort our democracy and, you know, so, uh, but still, I mean, this uh, election, the result election tells you all. I'm talking to Director General Daniel Chen. He's at the uh, Taiwanese consulate in Seattle. Are you getting what you need from the United States to make sure that China doesn't even try to take over Taiwan, or are you not getting what you need? I think we are very uh, confident and very excited uh, to to have the support and all the necessary assistance from the United States to make sure Taiwan is a democracy. And so for the past couple of years, we see the relations between both sides has reached a climax. And we, uh, we have a lot, we have received a lot of assistance uh, from the states. And also, we also, through the help, through the leadership of the United States, that uh, many, many like-minded countries also render their support to Taiwan. So uh, we, we cannot thank the states for enough. I guess, Mr. Uh, Director Chen, one of the things I want to remind people of, almost exactly four years ago, we were at the beginning of the pandemic. And on the 14th of, of January of that year, four years ago, uh, mainland China was telling the United States, look, uh, we can't even be sure that this disease spreads from people to people. That's what they were saying at the time. And the WHO was backing them up. Taiwan had done its best to try to warn the rest of the world in late December about what was coming, didn't you? Yes, Lars, you are 100% correct. I think uh, because of uh, the lesson we learned from the year, in the year 2003, we know, we knew the result. We also are very, uh, you know, aware of the nature of the PRC. So uh, we tried to do, try to remind the world that the nature of the PRC and we try to help. I think the, the, uh, the COVID has demonstrated to the world that Taiwan does uh, its best to help the world. And we are kind of a reliable and responsible partner of the international society. And one of the things that got in the way of your warning was the fact that Taiwan is not allowed to be a member of WHO, is it? No, we are not. We are not even an observer right now. Which means that, that WHO could simply ignore uh, what Taiwan was, its warnings in late December. And that's why on the 14th of January, the WHO came out and said, 
Now, there's no sign this disease even spreads from person to person, something we found out. I think the Chinese communists in the mainland at the uh, PRC, they knew that wasn't true when that message got flushed out by their allies over at the WHO. And part of the reason your your warning was not heard, uh, not allowed to be heard, was was because Taiwan was shut out of membership because the WHO doesn't view Taiwan as a full country. Lars, you are well, you are one hundred percent correct because of uh, Taiwan is not a member, so we cannot participate in the WHO, which deprived us the ability to contribute and even to uh, warn the world. So that's why the, the, the world right now is suffering. I mean, even now, a couple of days ago, there's a rumor, uh, I'm not sure, but probably most likely to be true. They are trying to study the new kind of uh, virus. Yep. So I think it's very, very dangerous and not responsible. I mean, all the research has been conducted in a very reasonable way. So that's why, uh, I mean, Taiwan has demonstrated that we, we've been always follow this kind of a principle and show the world and how how the world order should be. Uh, still, uh, so many countries, they, they are still possessed, maybe with some uh, uh, some merit or kind of some uh, cash by, by China. That is Daniel Chen. He is the Director General of the Taiwanese Consulate in Seattle. Director Chen, thanks so much for your time. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. drawn in the sand. He's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And I know that some of you have faulted me from time to time saying, hey, you complain about all these things like public education, government run schools, and then you don't suggest alternatives or how do you fix the problem? Well, I saw this the other day. And I was reading some of the things written by Brett Pike, who's the founder of the Classical Learner Homeschool Company and creator of the Homeschool's Connected Curriculum and author of the Cubs to Bears Children's Book Series. And I thought, this guy sounds like he's studied a particular group of Americans who seem to have a very good approach to education. Mr. Pike, welcome to the program. Hey, Lars. Thanks for having me. Now, you keep an eye on Amish people in America, and in particular, how they educate their kids. And I'll bet a lot of people may not, I mean, they know of the Amish, let's say, generically, but do you think most Americans understand how the Amish approach education? You know, they don't. And I don't just keep an eye on Amish, I keep an eye on all different forms of education. And the common thread you have outside of the public school system is that the purpose of an education is to get the learner ready to live a free and independent life in the real world, which is 
the exact opposite of what's happening in the public schools where the only thing these kids can do at 18 years old is sign a college loan, which they don't understand, go into debt and get four more years of indoctrination. Our schools aren't getting children ready to be successful in the real world. I agree with every single word you just said. So we're on the same page on that. Would you mind telling my audience, and I I didn't mean to shortchange you by saying the Amish, it's just that I don't see a lot of people who write about their model for education, which, as you point out, finishes in the eighth grade, which might shock people. And you say, well, if they finish in the eighth grade, they'll be wholly unprepared for life. And yet that's not the case, is it? Oh, I mean, they're more prepared than American school students are. I was pretty shocked a few years ago. I went to visit the Amish and... There must have been thousands of people there that day, and there were eight-year-olds managing uh, a hamburger stand by themselves. And to think about the amount of money, the customer relations that went into that, that these eight-year-olds are capable of doing that, but that's how the Amish prepare their children. And when they get to eighth grade, they graduate their formal schooling, which is very good. They're able to speak three different languages, and then they go on to their real-life training, and they start to learn agriculture they start to do apprenticeships they start to learn real skills for the real world and as i work with parents who are literally pulling their children out of the public school system by the millions i tell them that that's what we want to do we want to teach our kids skills engineering carpentry skills 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 so that they can live those independent lives and they have choices and That includes skills, that includes critical thinking, which our school system isn't doing at all. In fact, Gavin Newsom over there in California just passed a new bill mandating that school children be taught media literacy. And we could get into what his version of media literacy is versus what should be learning. Well, imagine what would happen if you taught a kid critical critical thinking, which I think is hugely important. And I hope I hope I do critical thinking every single day. I mean, there are people who bring me stories and say, hey, Lars, this is a story. And I look at it and say, you know, there's a logical contradiction in what you're telling me. Or let's go check and see how much this is backed up by other things. And I try to to double check it uh, to make sure eh, is what you're telling me actually matching up. And uh, and if it doesn't, uh, then then that. But but if you teach kids critical thinking and then you tell them, but boys can become girls, girls can become boys. Uh, your skin color makes it, you know, defines how you interact with the rest of the world and whether you're a victim or an oppressor. Critical thinkers wouldn't take that kind of garbage, would they? Yeah, well, that's that's why they don't do it. And when you see the dichotomy of the way it's being taught in school versus the way it's being taught thinking is being taught basically everywhere else, no parent in their right mind would send their children to these schools. I mean, they're already telling boys that they're girls and girls that they're boys, so who in their right mind would want to do anything to do with that? But when these children are being taught media literacy in California, same thing in New York, they just passed a similar bill, they're being told that if something is referenced by what they call a reputable source, then it's a then it's good information. So if the New York Times says it, well, they're reputable, it's good information. If you could cross-reference that with the New York Times and the Washington Post and Reuters, well, now all these reputable sources are reporting it, it must be true, which, of course, we know, anyone that's familiar with the history of the church committee and how these things are leveraged for money, they know it's nonsense, right? Because what the children should be taught is 
to scan these articles for logical fallacies, which, you know, just date, dates back to Greece and um, classical methods of thinking that have always been taught to children that we're being denied now. And they should be taught to get back to primary documents and review the documents for themselves and use their discernment. But that's not what's happening in public schools. It is what's happening in the alternative in homeschools all over America. By the way, I'm talking to Brett Pike. He's the founder of the Classical Learner Homeschool Company, creator of the Homeschools Connected Curriculum, and author of the Cubs to Bears children's book series. There are a lot of American parents. My, I have, I have a dog in the fight, Brett. I always try and disclose it. I have a granddaughter. Uh, she's being homeschooled. I, I went to public schools, but they were, it was a different time then. My wife also went to public schools. We didn't go to private schools. But what are you doing to help people who say, I want to take on this task, of homeschooling my children because the public schools have become too toxic. Um, what does is, what is your company do to try to make that possible? And, and, and for the practical side of it, how expensive is it? Because I've found that homeschooling seems to be a whole lot less expensive than 20 grand a year for K through 12 government run schools. Yeah, well, that's the beautiful thing that anybody can homeschool. It's one of the most welcoming communities in the world, 5 million plus families. And, it doesn't have to be um, something that breaks the bank. And two years ago, when I decided I was going to escalate and start my own homeschool company, we started building out curriculum, and we have built out rapidly courses on critical thinking and discernment and actual media literacy, like getting back to primary documents and um, scanning news articles for logical fallacies, learning the logical fallacies, courses on the Bill of Rights, the American Revolution, and why our rights are important. And then not just understanding the rights, but teaching real American civics that our children need, that our children deserve, if they're going to be able to defend their rights in the future. So the average American can't tell you the structure of the federal court system. Well, that's outrageous. So we're teaching that to elementary school kids. We're teaching that to middle school kids. And not only the structure of the court system – but the tools that are available to them. What is an affidavit? What is a conditional consent when your employer says that, you know, you have to do this medical intervention, otherwise you can't get, you know, you can't come to work. Well, people who know their rights don't get bullied, but people who don't know their rights essentially don't have them. So we're teaching these things. We're teaching financial literacy to elementary school students treating it like math, like science, embedding entrepreneurial, um, embedding entrepreneurship directly into the lessons, guiding these children to start their own lemonade stands, and as they get older, to do more and more things as they develop skills. We have an engineer. He was a mechanic at NASA. Now he's an industrial engineer, and he's been building out a STEM curriculum for first graders that they start, and they're learning how to actually build things with their hands. That's the way to go. That is Brad Pike. I know we're going to be talking to him in the future. He is the founder of the Classical Learner Homeschool Company, creator of the Homeschools Connected Curriculum, and the author of the Cubs to Bears Children's Book Series. And as he points out, the Amish kids finish school in eighth grade, but the learning doesn't stop there. And they're better prepared than many of the kids who are finishing out in government-run schools. Brett, thank you very much. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. 
cuddlers and co-workers. You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Usually we make it to the shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show in Las Vegas every single year. This year we did not. It's one of the few years that we've actually missed. But uh, the reason we go there is that we like to connect with some of the people who are doing good things for people around this great country. And one of them is Derek LeBlanc, who joins you now. He's president of the Kids Safe Foundation. Derek, welcome back to the program. Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me. Would you mind telling my audience what Kids Safe is all about and how it helps out kids around this country? Okay, so the Kids Safe Foundation, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're based in Oregon, and we teach firearm safety and accident prevention to kids. And in our history, since 2016, we've reached over 28,000 kids in five states and taught them important skills when it comes to gun safety. And in fact, you're, you're teaching what sounds like that it's very similar to the Eddie Eagle program, but the the idea is that if you teach very young kids, kids who aren't ready yet perhaps to go to a range and shoot a gun, but if you tell them if you encounter a gun, stop, don't touch, run away, and tell an adult, right? Yeah, absolutely. We kind of piggybacked on what the NRA is doing and, and kind of modernized it. So now we're talking about, you know, online safety, you know, video games, anti-bullying. So there's stuff that, you know, we're you know, into the next millennium when it comes to gun safety. And we're trying to normalize this conversation. There's there's guns in this country. They're not going anywhere. And so it's important that we educate the kids on the importance of safety. So what are you telling How successful are you at getting into some of the institutions where you're most likely to find kids, which I would guess would be school? It's, it's a challenge. I mean, depending on where we're going, you know, I'm, obviously we're from Oregon and, you know, we've had success there. I did write a Senate bill back in 2019 and I'm hoping to maybe try again. But we're talking nationally, you know, it, it depends on the state. You know, red states are definitely more friendly and more open to the idea of gun safety because they see the value of it to the, the children in the, in the schools. And so we're currently working with Oklahoma and, and helping them with their, their new bill. And, and so the, the goal is to normalize this conversation and bring guns safety across the country see that's the thing i've never understood derek and and i'll make this pitch that if you talk to teachers even if they're liberal teachers and you say what's the answer to unintended pregnancies and you say education and you say what about drugs well that'd be education what about bullying that'd be education what about child abuse that would be education every single problem in the world is answered by education and then when it comes to guns Even folks who consider themselves professional educators, you say to them, so what's the answer to keeping kids safe from guns they may encounter, you know, at a friend's house or out on the street or or whatever? And their answer is, I mean, it would effectively, if I were to translate it, be deliberate ignorance. We need to keep them as ignorant of the subject as we possibly can, which doesn't make any sense. No. Yeah, and that's that's our biggest biggest you know beef that I have with the schools and obviously the media. You do a very good job promoting responsible gun ownerships, but there's a Thank lot you. of a lot of a lot of people across the country trying to demonize gun ownership. And what they don't realize is there's an estimated 470 million guns in this country. They could pass every law. There's 22,000 laws already on the books. It's not going to fix the problems that we have, and so we have to focus at the next generation and, and teach them that the guns are normal. There's nothing to be fearful of if they're handled properly. And, and that's how we set them out on this, this, you know, and keep them safe as they get older. 
I'm talking to Derek LeBlanc, who's president of the Kids Safe at SAFE Foundation. We're talking to him live from SHOT Show uh, because because we normally go to SHOT Show, but we're just not there this year. Maybe that's the problem, that when you approach schools or other kind of community institutions where you'd likely find kids, boys and girls clubs or anything like that, that they're worried that you're going to make the kids know that guns are a normal tool, that they can be used safely, and that there are ways for little kids to interact with them, and that having adults who own guns, that that's not a problem. Maybe they don't like that part of your message because they want to teach kids that guns are something to be feared and that, and that guns are a bad thing. Oh, absolutely. You have to look, follow the money. You know, there's so much money attached to gun control, and I can we can prove from the, from the work that we've done with 28,000 kids reached that you know gun control. We go into California, uh, you know, there's no educational opportunities for those kids, and so that's actually detrimental to the safety of their kids. So we can prove that education, if taught properly, is a value to our society, and that's what we're trying to do. And that's we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here and, and speak with you. Well, if, if- Parents want to reach out to you. What's the best way for them to reach out to you and maybe to start this kind of program in their own community? Awesome. So you can find us on our website, kidssafefoundation.org. There's two S's. You can also find us Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, also on YouTube. And, and just send us an email. And what we'll do is, you know, we are, we're trying to get this outside of the Northwest and get it across the country. Obviously, it comes down to funding. You know, funding is very tight, you know, being a nonprofit. But, you know, we can start this conversation and bring our curriculum to their area because it's something that we know will work because it's been vetted. It's I've got 4,000 hours in front of these kids, you know, practicing and demoing what we do. We know it works. We just need the opportunity. Well, at the end of the day, is it that expensive to create a curriculum or for you to give copies of this to people and say, okay, you can teach this in your own community, maybe teach it in your own schools, or if not that, then some other kind of community institution, like I said, a parks department or the Boys and Girls Clubs or anything like that. Does it cost that much much to do it? Absolutely not. And that's that's what we're trying to just put the final pieces together. Because obviously we want to make sure the people that we're engaging with, they're going to be helping spread the message. You know, we want to make sure that they're, they're moral and they're safe. You know, because we don't want to, we want to make sure we protect the, the kids at all levels. And that means we protect them from predators as this thing grows. Because we don't know who's going to be trying to reach out to try to be a part of this. But we want to make sure that it is safety first for our children. And if you if you get these kids who come, and what's the age range specifically you're aiming at? But it, because at some point, I mean, even my almost eight year old granddaughter, I'd like to teach her to shoot, or her dad will do it because he's equally uh, okay uh-huh. with the idea. But there's an age to do that, and there's an age where kids should be just told stop, don't touch, run away, tell an adult. Yeah, so I mean, you look at look at the demographics. I mean, obviously, the most vulnerable age for children is probably going to be four to eight years old, and so that's where we're. You know, if we normalize the conversation, you know, a lot of us carry a gun for personal protection because you know society is yep. dangerous, and so the gun is there at face level if it's in a holster. So just talk to the children. You know, say that this is a tool. This is something that we use to keep everybody safe, and normalize this conversation. And and for the the people that might be listening that don't have guns or are afraid of guns, don't think for a second just because you don't have firearms in the home that your kids can't be exposed somewhere else, you know. And so show and tell would be a very dangerous situation for the kids. So that's why we're trying to empower them. We also take them to the range, teach them how to shoot. So everything is about showing, showcasing the fact that education will save lives. See, and that's the thing I worry about, because I, I've had adults tell me, they said, well, I don't own guns, I don't like guns, I don't want them in my house, so I'm not going to teach my kids about them. 
And I said, do you mean your kids don't go out in the world? They don't go to a friend's house for a sleepover. They don't go visit somebody else's house. And, and they're, and you know for a fact they're not going to be, you know, exposed, uh, you know, uh, that one, that some kid who's not as well educated might say, hey, I know where my dad keeps his pistol. It's really cool. Let's go look at it and have your child know, no, hold on. I'm not doing that. And by the way, I'm going to tell my mom that, you know, you, even though that's going to be a tough thing for kids to do, but you teach them, there's nothing wrong with it. You come to us and say, hey, Johnny tried to show you a pistol. Uh, Johnny shouldn't have been doing that. And Johnny's parents should know that. And you shouldn't have been looking at it without an adult present and the adult managing the situation. You have to know that even if you've decided on your own as a parent that you don't want anything to do with guns, it doesn't mean your kids aren't going to be exposed to it anymore then your kids might be exposed to drugs that you also don't have in your house. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And that's that's my biggest thing is for the parents that are afraid and don't want to educate the kids, step back for a second and think about something that's bigger than yourself and your ego, okay, or your fear. Get over that for a second. Just know there's an organization out there that cares for your children and wants to make sure that and it only takes an hour. It's just like paying your insurance. We pay our insurance every month because we don't want to have a claim. That's why gun safety is so important for those kids. Absolutely. Derek LeBlanc. Derek, thank you very much. He's president of the Kids Safe Foundation. If you lose the contact information, shoot me an email. We'll get you all fixed up. Glad to get your calls at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I want to talk in a moment about what happens when Democrats finally realize, as they are during this election year, that the folks they elected to public office are actually ruining their town. And a lot of this has to do with illegal aliens. But let me get into that in just a moment. First, I want to go to some of your calls. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our poll on X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and on my website at Lars larson.com let me go first to jim hey jim welcome to the program what's on your mind hey lars in reference to your last two calls i can i'm a volunteer firefighter for over 30 years and i think that that may have to do with the unions we're we're always under pressure to change from volunteers to paid firefighters by the unions and those that back them yeah, and, the, and, and don't, anyway, don't volunteer firefighters actually outnumber professional firefighters in America right now? They do right now, but it's getting less and less every year because of that push to, uh, to get paid firefighters. And they, people will always back levies for fire service, and so if they can get on there, they can change it in a heartbeat. 
Well, except that not to push back, but it sounds like you're a volunteer firefighter, but and I've never been one, but I have a number of friends who are, and they tell me most of the time you have a volunteer fire department because the community can't afford the the cost. So uh, they may have uh, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people, most of whom are volunteers, and one or two paid firefighters in a volunteer department. So you have some people with some, some training, formal training as firefighters, if you go from 30 firefighters that are volunteer to 30 paid, that sounds like a pretty good chunk of money in small communities, doesn't it? Well, a couple points, Lars. We are very well trained as volunteers. Uh, pretty much. The yeah, same I'm not undercutting your training. I'm just saying, don't you differentiate by saying, well, we're a volunteer department with 30 or 40 volunteers, and we have one or two or three uh, paid, pro- what they call, referred to as professional. Am I getting their language wrong? Well, actually, most of them are 100% volunteers with with virtually no pay going out. And the problem we have, just like in small towns and cities, is that the, we're, we're covered on both sides by paid departments. And so they, they kind of kind of use their influence, and it just their dominoes fall as you go farther out from the cities. And so the same thing that, that has happened with housing or anything else uh, the pressure comes to can't we get better service if, if they were paid and we could pay just a little bit more and we'd have a paid department and never have any of the worries from that volunteers can bring. Yeah, and like anyway, I said, I that the that- only concern I'd have is if you had 30 volunteers and you said let's put them on all full paychecks as as you know as as uh, paid uh, firefighters. Doesn't that sound 30 full time salaries? Sounds like a lot of money unless you only pay them when they're actually working as firefighters for that shift. Well, that that sounds good, but when you when you ride re, when you when levy rates rise, people if you look at it they will always vote for fire service because they're always being saved by the firemen. Yep. So a little a little bit of a raise year after year you get to a point where you can support more and more paid in your department. That makes sense. Now, you actually called in originally because you paid a visit to your liberal mother, and she told you she didn't believe some of the stuff that's going on in America. You can tell her that it's, yeah. I mean, most of it, uh, what you told my producer is true, but frankly, I can't believe half the stuff that I end up talking about, but it's it's not fiction. It's not made up. What I was curious about is what was your mom telling you she didn't believe in the news? Well, pretty much... I, I made a point this time to sit and listen with her to her her mainstream news for an hour and a half every night, and I, I couldn't help myself but make a comment now and then about how why aren't they at least talking about how EVs do in this cold weather and 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 things like that, and she she would act like I, I am out of my brain and lying through my teeth whenever I would bring something like that up or that how come they don't don't mention global warming when we're having these freezes they never mention ever anything about climate change because it, it does not match their narrative a- anyway so it, it's pretty disconcerting to sit there and listen to the news and have them never talk about so many things that are relevant yeah, see, I've got the same concern because Joe Biden running around telling everybody that, hey, the economy is great. No, it's not. 
I mean, by the numbers, by people's own experience, it's not. Jim, I appreciate the call. Let's go to Jerry. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, Lars, uh, I have an idea of why I believe Nikki is staying in the race. Nikki Haley. Yeah, why is that? Yes, because she believes that over time that Donald Trump is going to be legally not able to be president. She'll be the only one left. And at that point, then uh, Ron DeSantis will jump back in because Donald Trump will give him his endorsement. That's what I think is going to happen. Okay, except I think, uh, while I disagree with Nikki Haley in her sympathy for illegal aliens and a whole bunch of, of her positions on the issues, I don't think she's uninformed. She must know what does she what is it you think she believes would disqualify Trump from running for president? I'm just thinking with all the legal complications he's dealing with, something's going to catch him. No, but hold on. There are three things you have to do to be president. One, you got to be a natural born citizen of the United States. That's Donald Trump. You have to be at least 35. He's more than twice that. And you have to be been a legal resident of the United States for 14 years. He meets all those qualifications. What's going to disqualify him? I don't know. Democrat and all this, these tricks they're trying to pull. I love Donald Trump. I but love Donald Trump, all. too. And I think he's going to make a great president come January of next year. But I, I, I think they're, they're smoking dope when they say, well, uh, listen, I, uh, you know, I think he's going to be disqualified. You've had Democrat, a Democrat almost 100 years ago, Eugene Debs, a real crazy socialist, who actually ran for president from behind bars in prison. So the Democrats who are smoking this stuff and seem to think that Joe Biden's the greatest thing since sliced bread and he's going to make it, he's made a great president so far and all he's doing is good things for America and that Donald Trump's going to be disqualified qualified because of all their cockamamie indictments that are currently falling apart right in front of their eyes, in part because the Democrats like Fannie Willis can't keep it zip. Are you kidding me? You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. The Lars Larson Show. Living in Afghanistan, 